0: to the end of our series on the book of Esther. Just as a recap, we started a few weeks ago, we looked, um, the, the subtitle of this series is The Fingerprints of the Unseen God. And so we started in the first couple of chapters looking at the lure of the world and sort of maybe what the temptation that the world has to offer to us. Uh, from there we went to see a little bit of the battle between good and evil, uh, when we see the contrast between Haman and Mordecai, connected that back with the, with the temptation in the Garden of Eden and how this struggle between uh, God's people and the enemy is there at all times, even for us today, where, we're, where there might be a, a spiritual battle that we're facing And we went and we saw the boldness and courage of Esther and how she was willing to lay down her life and sacrifice herself for the sake of her people. We saw how Mordecai challenged her to say, uh, maybe you've come into the kingdom for such a time as this and for our own lives in whatever place or situation that we find ourselves in, maybe we are there in our particular workplace or in our families or wherever it might be for such a time as this, for something that God wants us to accomplish. Last week, we looked at uh, how pride comes before a fall, and we saw um, in the New Testament that teaching of Jesus that God humbles the proud person and exalts the humble person, and we see that perfectly lived out in the life of Haman, who uh, was a proud man and pushed himself forward and did so many different things, but ultimately he was brought down. And so that com- brings us to part five of this series and our last uh, part of this series, which we're, which we're dealing with chapters eight to 10. And the title is, Let the Celebration Begin. And so thank you, Keisha and the worship team, for allowing us to enter in with a little bit of celebration, because we want to see a little bit of how the story ends and why we need to celebrate as well, so we left off with Haman's plan actually being exposed, uh, the king siding with Queen Esther, and finally Haman being killed. Chapter eight starts off with uh, the king uh, transferred everything that belonged to Haman over into the custody of Esther, and Esther brings Mordecai into the palace and introduces Mordecai to the king. Right, so now the king knows who Mordecai is and exactly what's happened. Uh, Mordecai actually gets Haman's ring, the ring that Haman had to like seal those edicts and documents. Um, Mordecai gets Haman's ring, which seems like that the king is exalting Mordecai into a position of power. Uh, Then Queen Esther goes again to the king and pleads and begs and weeps before the king, asking if somehow that edict can be overturned. Uh, That Haman made, and the king says, no, we can't overturn that edict, but he gives Mordecai and Esther an idea that they can actually make another edict in order to protect their people. So Mordecai writes in the king's name, and uh, he makes an edict that says that grants the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves. So they're given the opportunity now to defend themselves. So uh, In essence, essence, what happens is that those that are still holding on to Haman or still uh, having their allegiance with Haman they're going to be the ones that are going to be killed, as we'll see in this, uh, in this portion of Scripture. And they actually, uh, the, the edict originally was to kill and annihilate all the Jewish people, but what actually happens is the opposite. And now the Jewish people start to kill and annihilate the people that actually hold allegiance with Haman. And as we saw previously, that Haman was an Agagite, which we could make a connection to the Amalekites, whom the Lord told King Saul that they have to utterly kill and destroy and take them out, right? Because uh, of what they did to Israel when Israel was trying to come into the promised land. Um, so in one sense, Queen Esther and Mordecai succeeded in what King Saul had failed to do, right? And so at the end of chapter eight, there's a joyous celebration in Susa because of what's happening, um, because before, if you remember, when Haman's edict went out, there was so much confusion in the palace. But now there's rejoicing and there's joy. We get to chapter 9 and Mordecai is increasing in power, increasing in, in authority within the kingdom. Many people are becoming afraid now of Mordecai because of the stature that he has. And finally, when that day approaches uh, of when the edicts are going to actually take place and there's going to be a lot of killing that goes on, the governors and the administrators throughout the kingdom actually end up helping the Jewish people because the Bible says because of the fear of Mordecai, right? And so, uh, in Susa, they ended up killing about 500 people and the 10 sons of Haman were also killed. And so, uh, the king reports this to Esther and then the king asks Esther another question and says, look, is there anything more that you'd like me to do? And so, uh, Esther says, well, can the same thing happen again the next day, but just here in the palace area of Susa? And also, can you impale the ten sons of Haman as well? Sort of like just an exclamation point on this whole story. And so that happens, and the next day there's another 300 people that were killed. So throughout the kingdom, it says there was about 75,000 people that were killed on the 13th day of the month Adar. And on the 14th day, they made a, a... a feast, and they were celebrating. There was joy. The fifteenth day in Susa, the palace area, they actually had a day of feasting and joy. And so Mordecai records all of these things, and he actually institutes a feast that's supposed to be celebrated uh, on the fourteenth and the fifteenth day of that month, Adar, which is called the Feast of Purim. Okay, and they would rejoice and they would celebrate. They would even give gifts to the poor, um, and so they would observe this two days. Uh, in the year and so Mordecai and Esther they write letters to all of the Jews throughout the whole kingdom saying we're establishing this feast you got to celebrate this every single year we get to chapter 10 short little chapter and it talks about the greatness of Mordecai talks about how he was basically second to the king right and um, small little chapter to end off the the book so there's so many things that we can study from this but we'll just maybe highlight a couple of things but before that let's pray Father, we thank you for this beautiful book of Esther, and we thank you for the lessons that we've learned thus far. And Lord, we just pray that as we look into your word this morning, that you would speak to us, and most of all, that we would be able to do and act on your word, O God. So let your Holy Spirit move and speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So. Uh, in, this, in these chapters 8 to 10, there's so many different things that we can look at. A couple of things that I just wanted to highlight, uh, which I believe are more applicationally what we can take out of, this, out of these portions. Number one is, what is our attitude towards those who don't know Jesus? Now, you're probably wondering, Daniel, where did you get that from this portion? Right? Well, let's look at Esther chapter 8 and verse 3. It says, Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping, she begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. So in, in part two of this series, we saw the struggle between good and evil. We saw the, the struggle between the Amalekites and the Israelites, and the similar struggle that we face as well between the enemy of our soul and us who are children of, children of God. We, we saw how the thief comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. The enemy wants to ruin our lives. And in this particular portion, we see that Esther is actually, after all of these things that have happened up to chapter 7, the end of chapter 7, Esther now is in actually a comfortable place, right? Mordecai is being revealed of who he is, and Mordecai is now brought into the palace. Esther's okay, Mordecai is okay, she's in a comfortable place, but there's still one thing that's going to happen, and that's the destruction of her people. Even though Haman is dead, that enemy is dealt with, this edict is still there. And so here, Esther, even though she, for her own personal self, is in a comfortable place, still she has a burden for her people. And actually in this portion, we really see an emotional response from Esther, which we haven't seen throughout the book. I I think here in chapter 8, we see Esther emotionally responding even more than in other places, where it says here that she falls at the king's feet and she is weeping. And my my challenge to, to all of us today, including myself, is what is our attitude toward those that don't know Jesus, that don't know Christ? In a similar situation here, the people were facing destruction. How many know that there's many people throughout the world today that don't know Christ and can go into a Christless eternity? And it's incumbent upon us as the children of God, to weep, to cry, to plead with God, and also to do, to go out and share. It's incumbent upon us as people of God to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, talking about his own Jewish people, Paul being a Jew, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. Those of my own race, the people of Israel. Here Paul is saying, he's like, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off if somehow the rest of Israel would come to know Christ and be saved. Can you see the burden? He says, I- I'm in great sorrow and unceasing anguish. The-, the challenge that I have for all of us, including myself, is are we like that for the people around us? Are we like that for our neighbors, for our friends, for our co-workers? For our loved ones, is there a great sorrow and unceasing anguish within ourselves saying, I want them to know Christ. I want them to have a relationship with Jesus. I want to share the good news of the gospel with them. Esther was in a very comfortable place now. Haman's dead. Everything's taken care of. Mordecai's now in the palace. The king knows the whole relationship. Everything is out in the open now. But that's not enough for Esther. Now she weeps. She pleads. She cries out to the king and says, King, is there something that can be done for my people? Because they are facing destruction and the challenge that God gives to all of us is what are we doing? Realizing that there's so many people facing destruction and going into a Christless eternity. And we are just living comfortable lives. I remember a song by Keith Green and, and part of one of the, of the songs. The title of the song, I believe, is called Sleep in the Light. Don't you see? Don't you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care? Don't you care? Are you going to let them drown? How can we be so numb? Not to care if they come. We close our eyes and we're asleep in the light. The challenge for all of us, like Esther, will we lay down our lives? We weep and cry in front of the king. King, can you do something for my people? Jesus, please save this person, work in this person's life. You know the story of Moses when uh, the children of Israel, they, time and time again, you know, they would make mistakes and they would mess up. And in one point in the story, when they really messed up, Moses pleaded with with God, and he says in Exodus 32, he says, so Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. I think all of us can pray up to that point, right? Are we good there? But then what does he say? But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. I don't know about you, I can't really pray that second part of the prayer. I'm good till forgive their sin. Lord, forgive their sin, but make sure you take care of me too. But Moses here, because of his burden for others, because of his burden for the people, he says, God, forgive their sin, but God, if you're not going to forgive them, then blot me out too. Now, I'm not saying this to say that we discount our spiritual life or we don't take our walk with God less seriously. No, we have to be diligent with our walk with the Lord. But what I'm trying to illustrate here is the burden that these people like Moses and Paul had for others, the burden that Esther had as well for her own people to be saved from destruction. She was in a comfortable position, maybe like many of us today. Can we share the good news with others? Do we weep and cry? at the feet of the king. You know, a few months ago, we had a, a women's mission, missions conference. And one of the ladies that were there, she was challenged during the conference to actually share uh, the gospel with somebody. And she thought about her neighbor, that she could share the gospel with her neighbor that she had known. But so many different things happen, as it happens for many of us. Life happens. Things get busy. We lose opportunities and circumstances. And that missions conference was on November 11th and on Christmas Day she got a call saying that that lady had passed away. And that struck her very hard. She was hit very emotionally by that news because the opportunity was missed. The burden that God had given her wasn't acted upon and the opportunity was missed. You know, as as Pastor Kevin mentioned, we're having an Alpha Night on February 25th. And I just want to encourage you to, to come out for that. I want to encourage you when we start Alpha in April to sign up. If you've never gone through an Alpha course, I want to encourage you to sign up yourself and go through it so you see what the full thing is like. And when you come out, bring somebody with you. Is there anguish in our spirit? Is there an anguish, a sorrow in our heart that will say, I need to share the gospel with this person? I don't want them going into a Christless eternity. I need to share the word of God with my coworkers or with this person I'm gonna to go to Alpha. I'm gonna bring somebody out for that as well. I just wanna encourage you, as Esther had that burden for her people, I don't want them to perish. I don't want them to be destroyed. King, can you do something, please? I tell you, our King Jesus is standing ever ready to do something for them. Our King Jesus is with open arms, wanting people to come in. Our King Jesus is there with the free gift of salvation. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your King and your Savior. I want to encourage you to surrender your life to Jesus. There'll be people here after the service that you could pray with as well. I want to just encourage you to to step out in faith for all that he has to offer. Number two, another lesson that we learn through these chapters here is to celebrate the goodness of God. The the Feast of Purim was celebrated in order to, in order that the Jewish people would remember God's deliverance. That they would remember what the Lord did for them and so that they could celebrate. In Esther chapter 8, verses 15 to 17, it says, And the city of Susa had a joyous celebration for the Jews. It was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebration. This wasn't even when the enemy was was killed. This was just at the announcement of the news. There was great joy and great celebration. And for us, as children of God, there is an opportunity that God gives us every single day to celebrate Jesus, to thank God for what he's done in our lives, to rejoice in salvation, to rejoice in his goodness in our lives. Esther chapter 9, from verses 17 to 19, it says, this happened on the 13th day of the month Adar. And on the 14th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, it assembled on the 13th and 14th. And then on the 15th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. And so there was a time uh, this this Feast of Purim, which would, would later on be established every single year, even till today, there are Jews that celebrate the Feast of Purim. And it's a day of rejoicing. It's a day of celebration. It's a day when people can can come together and remember the goodness of God. Actually, the Feast of Purim is not too far away from us today. It's going to be celebrated on February 28th right so we're just a couple of weeks away and there are orthodox jews t- uh, till today they celebrate the feast of purim they they read through the whole book of esther uh and they celebrate what god has done and sometimes when they're when they're reading through whenever the name of H- uh, haman is mentioned they're supposed to like yell and scream or or make some sounds to drown out the name of uh, of haman right because they don't want his name he's the enemy right they don't want his name to be to be heard and so it's a, it's a time of celebration in chapter nine in verses 21 and 22, it says, "To have them celebrate annually." this was the, when, when this feast was actually instituted. it says, "To have them celebrate annually, the 14th and 15th day of the month Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts. To the poor. It's so important, it's so vital for our spiritual life that we remember God's goodness. It's so important, so vital for our spiritual life that we remember what God has done for us and that we don't forget to celebrate. You know, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, that was a huge deliverance. Ten plagues that were sent down to Egypt. God brought the children of Israel out of uh, Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea. And there was a a feast that was instituted while they were there in Egypt, the first time that they celebrated on the time when they were delivered. It's called the Feast of Passover. Until today, the Israelites celebrate the Passover. Exodus 12, verse 17 says, celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Dear friends, what is the great thing that God has done for you? What is the exceptional thing that God has delivered you from? What is the amazing way that you've seen God's hand in your life or in your family? And is it something that happened years ago and time passed and now you've forgotten about it, you remember every now and then? Or do you take time and opportunity to celebrate it, to remember it, to teach your children about it, to tell them this is the goodness of God? To tell them, this is how God delivered me. This is how God saved me. This is how God provided for me. And to rehearse it over and over and over again. They had to celebrate the Feast of Purim every single year. They had to celebrate the Passover every single year. There was other feasts that they had to celebrate every single year. There was a lot of eating going on, right? A lot of eating, a lot of celebrating, a lot of enjoyment going on. Why? They want God wanted them never to forget. And I think that's one of our problems as well is that we forget. Forget the goodness of God. We forget what God has done for us, how God has delivered us. What do, what do we normally celebrate every year? We celebrate our birthday, right? Anniversaries, Christmas, Easter, New Year's, right? Maybe there are other days that maybe are more sadder days as well in our life. Maybe the loss of a loved one or when a tragedy has taken place. But do we take time to celebrate what God has done for us? Are there dates marked in our calendar that remind us, I remember when God did this for me. This is my spiritual birthday when God actually, when Christ came into my life and changed me and transformed me. Do we write it in a book? Maybe we should do that. Maybe you should go home today and write it in a book. All of these amazing and wonderful things that God has done for you. Write in a book and keep it. And then every year, at one point in the year, open it up. Sit your family down. Sit your children down. Open up that book and read through that book. And it will be rehearsed in the years of your children. It will be rehearsed in the years of your family so you will never forget the goodness of God. Write it down. Read it over and over and over again every year. Maybe it's something that you want to do every month. But what do we remember on a daily basis? What do we remember on a weekly basis? What do we remember on a monthly basis? What do we remember on a yearly basis? The point is, celebrate the goodness of God in our lives. It's so easy for us to be so negative on things. We're naturally probably negative people. We always tend to look at the bad thing, or this bad thing happened, this negative thing happened, where sometimes we just tend to be people that look at the glass half empty instead of it half full. But God wants us to celebrate his goodness and what he's done for us. In Joshua chapter 3 and 4, we read about how the children of Israel, when they were coming into the promised land, finally, the culmination of everything that God had said for them, that they would be coming to the promised land. And so when they were crossing the river Jordan, do you know what, uh, what Joshua told the people? Joshua told them, as you're crossing the Jordan River, I want you to take 12 stones from there, 12 rocks. They were pretty big. You, you to to had to hold them the, their on their shoulder. shoulder. And bring it out into the promised land and, and, and put it there as a, as a remembrance. So that in years to come, when people ask, what does these stones mean? They would be able to look back and say, this is when God brought us from this land over the Jordan River into the promised land. When they see those stones, they would be able to remember the promises that God gave to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. This is when it was fulfilled and God finally brought them into the promised land. I wonder what the pillars of remembrance are in our life. What are the pillars that we remember? What are the stones that we erect to bring remembrance? You know, one of the most famous stories in the Bible is the story of David and Goliath. And some of you know that story how David was facing this big giant Goliath and he was just a a shepherd boy at the time. And with just one stone and his sling, he hit Goliath and Goliath fell down. And then David ran over there to Goliath And he took Goliath's big sword and he cut Goliath's neck off, head off at the neck with that big sword of Goliath. You know, so many years later, when Saul was out to kill David and finally David had made a friendship with Jonathan, Saul's son. And they were trying to determine what was Saul's real intentions and motives. And finally, when it came out that Saul was going to kill David or wanted to kill David, David ran away. It was probably a time of great discouragement, distress in David's life. If you were in David's shoes and the king is out to kill you, what would you be thinking? Right? Where could you run to? Where could you go? Who could defend you? Who could you help? The king of the land is out to kill me. What am I going to do? And the Bible says at that point, David ran away and he came to one of the priests. And when he came to the, to the priest, his name was uh, Ahimelech. And he came to, to this priest. And when he was talking to, to the priest, and he was telling a story to the priest, which probably wasn't really true either. But he was talking to the priest and he asked the priest, he said, is there any weapons here? Is there anything here that I could use? Do you know what the priest said? I have one sword, and only one sword. It's the sword of Goliath, the man you killed. It's right here. Take it if you want it. You know what? I think it wasn't so much that David needed a sword, but I really believe in the sovereignty of God and in the fingerprints of the unseen God that God had that sword right there for David, not so much so that David would would have a sword to use, but that David would remember what God did for him years before in giving Goliath into his hand. I really believe that at that point in the story, it was more of David getting assurance and trusting God and a remembrance. Oh, see the sword? I remember now when I was just a little shepherd boy. And just with one sling and one stone, I slayed that giant because God was with me. Because the God of Israel was my strength and my refuge. I remember that. I've seen the sword now and now it's all coming back to me. And I believe that brought strength to David at that time in his life when he was running away from Saul. And how many times in our life God allows situations and circumstances to come into our lives to remind us of what God has done for us to remind us of his goodness, of his deliverance, so that we would trust in him as our refuge. We would trust in him as our help. We would know him, the God of Israel, who is at my right hand, and I won't be moved. God does that for us, and so we remember those things. There's great joy in the Christian life. There's great joy in the Christian message. I love this verse in Luke 15 and verse verse 10. It says, in the same way I tell you, There's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. There's joy in this Christian life. Angels are rejoicing when one sinner repents. There's joy that God brings to us as well when we remember our salvation, when we remember what God has done for us. We can rejoice in the Lord. Number three, and just to close up this whole series, see the fingerprints of the unseen God in your life. Now, I couldn't do this from the beginning because we were sort of walking through the whole book of Esther step by step. But actually, when we look back and we see this whole story, when we come to the end of this book, we can actually look back and see God's hand. In chapter 2, we see Mordecai uncovering a plot to kill the king, but then that goes unrewarded at that particular time, right? When the lot was cast to determine what month or what day this whole annihilation of the Jews would be, it was actually 12 months away. And so there was time for Esther and uh, and Mordecai to actually act. Uh, we see how Esther was bold and courageous to intercede for her people, right? And we see the patience of Esther as well. She didn't rush in to tell the king, but instead she took three days of fasting. And she told Mordecai as well to take three days of fasting. And even then, the first time she approached the king, she didn't blurt everything out. She said, king, I want to invite you to a banquet, and then at that banquet, she didn't even tell her at that time. She said, I want you to invite you to another banquet. She was patient. And while she was patient, who was working? God was working behind the scenes, right? God was working behind the scenes. It's interesting because if Esther had told the king her petition on that very first day, I don't know how the rest of the story would have worked out because the king wouldn't have known who this Mordecai character is, right? Only later on he was reminded and he honored Mordecai. Then the whole story came out afterwards. If you think about the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, how uh, we know how he was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, finally came into the house of Potiphar. Even in that, he was betrayed and then sent to prison. And when he was in prison, he interpreted a couple of dreams and he told, he told the, the butler, remember me when you're set free. And what happened? Good old butler forgot about Joseph. But what if the butler remembered Joseph? Maybe Joseph would have been set free at that particular time. But if he had been set free at that particular time, he wouldn't have been there to interpret the king's, the Pharaoh's dream. Maybe he was set free because of what the butler did. And then what happens? Maybe he goes back to Jacob, his father. Maybe he goes back to his, his brothers to see them. No, jo- Joseph had to stay there for a longer time. Again, you see the fingerprints of the unseen God. You see God working for a very particular time. Same thing with the king. On one particular night, he had a sleepless night. Out of all the things that he could do on that sleepless night, he asked for a book to be read. Out of all the books that he could choose, I'm sure there was probably more riveting stories that he could have read. But he said, bring the chronicles of the kingdom. And out of all of the things that were written in the chronicles of the kingdom, out of the multitudes of stuff that was written, he finds this one story about Mordecai. And he reads, and that story is read, and he says, what has been done to honor Mordecai? And then Mordecai is honored the next day. That's significant as well. Because later on in the story, when Haman is dead and Mordecai is lifted up and he's writing this edict, if Mordecai wasn't lifted up before and honored throughout the kingdom, then he's going to be sending these letters and people are going to be scratching their heads wondering, who is this guy Mordecai? But because Mordecai was honored at that particular time, he was led through the streets and says, this is the person the king delights to honor. Because of that, what happens? Later on, the Bible says people started to fear Mordecai. God put everything in place at the exact time, right? And it's interesting because when when Esther reveals her petition, the king actually takes Esther's side. There was no guarantee that the king would take Esther's side. The king could have said, yeah, away with you. I don't care about your people anyway, right? He had tossed out a queen before in chapter one. Who was to say that he wouldn't toss out Esther again or another queen again? But The king took Esther's side, right? And we see all of these various things happening. We see the fingerprints of the unseen God. Even after all of this happens, the king goes back to Esther and asks, is there anything else that you want me to do? And Mordecai is exalted, and that's good news for the Jewish people. Then Purim is established. All of these things that are happening. Proverbs 16 and verse um, 33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Purim comes from the word pur, which means lot, right? I, I, I love this verse because it says, the lot is cast into the lap. Okay, whatever happens. But every what? Decision is from who? The Lord. This is how we rest in the sovereignty of God. This is how we rest In the providence of God. This is how we rest in the goodness of God. This is how we rest in the love of God. We see God working through regular people in regular circumstances to accomplish his purpose. We might not see the miracles and signs and wonders. We may. God works in that way as well. But he's working as well through the mundane, through the ordinary, through the regular things that we go through in our life. It's not a coincidence But it's that God's timing is perfect. God is speaking even in the silence. There's so many great reversals in this book. It gives us hope that God can reverse the course of our life as well. You might think, oh, I've messed up. I've done this, I've done that. Oh, I'm headed in a wrong direction. Oh, my life is not working out. There's so many wrong things. Oh, I can't believe this happened. In the book of Esther, we see so many reversals here. It gives us hope that God can reverse the course of our life as well. There's no need for us to be discouraged. When you read the book of Esther, you see God working there, God could do the same thing for me. He makes all things beautiful in his time. Sometimes we don't see it. It's the unseen God. It's the fingerprints that we might not see. We We might miss it. I love this illustration. I wonder if anyone can tell me what this is. This is actually a tapestry. It's a tapestry, the backside of a tapestry that... You see all these pieces of yarn. Um, if anyone actually does tapestry, let me know. I would love to get a better picture. This resolution is terrible. But this is the backside of a tapestry. And you see all the yarns. You see, it just looks like a big mess. And that's maybe what we're seeing in our life. But when you flip it over on the other side, there it is on the left. It's a crown. And there you see it on the, on the right, the backside. And so sometimes that's like us in our life. When we see maybe all of these yarns, we see, look, it's not really making sense. But God is the one that's weaving. God is the one that's working. God is the one that's doing something amazing in all of our lives. And I believe when we get to heaven, we'll be able to see, in one sense, God turning us inside out. In one sense, God flipping us and saying, ah, that's what God was doing. Ah, now I see God's hand in allowing the trials, in allowing the difficulties, in allowing all of these situations. I just want to leave with this this last verse in Romans 15 and verse 4. We read this earlier on in the series. But it says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. I want to leave you with hope today. As, you re, as we've read through and, and traveled through the book of Esther and as we've seen these things that were written in the past, it should bring us hope because God is at work. It's the fingerprints of the unseen God in our lives. Maybe not in big signs and wonders and miracles, but in the little things that God is doing, in the mundane, in the ordinary, in the simple. God is orchestrating our life in God as, as we surrender to Him, as we yield to Him, as we seek and desire to do His will. God is working on our behalf. There's hope for us. I don't know what your situation is today, but there's hope in a God of reversals that can change course, change direction. We see that here in the book of Esther, so many reversals, so many changes in direction. And that's the story of our life as well. God can do that for you and God can do that for me. He's delivered us, he saved us, He's transformed us. We're going to sing this song called no Longer, no Longer Slaves. We're surrounded by the arms of the Father. We're surrounded by songs of deliverance. We've been liberated from our bondage. We are the sons and daughters of God. The same way that God delivered His people in the book of Esther. The same way that God protected His people in the book of Esther. The same way that the sovereign God through His providence was working on behalf of His people the Jewish people, we are the true Jewish people. We are the true Israelites who call on the name of the Lord and we have deliverance from bondage today. Let's sing.